Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you, the beloved listener of Beyond Governance show here at 101.9 High FM. Yours truly is Nimra Fimbele. I am delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue to do our daily grind to find pockets of excellence amidst mayhem of governance and malfeasance which straddle both private and public sector organizations. As you all know, this month marks the decade since the passing of Nelson Mandela, who was undoubtedly an international treasure whose legacy remains unparalleled. Given the decaying status of the country, I'm sure everybody would agree that Madiba would be absolutely appalled at what he sees, which implicates uh, some of his cabinet ministers and people that rely on. The rampant corruption is one of the biggest issues that Mandela stood against and will be absolutely shocked to see how deep it has gone. In, you know, I've just looked, I saw the article by Lum Kilomonde, who is an economic professor at Vets University, where he described some of the main problems facing South Africa today. One obviously being the levels of unemployment that are exceptionally high. We're sitting at what? 40% if you're going to use the broader definition of unemployment. And most importantly, inequality and poverty that has deepened. He also made reference to infrastructure that has collapsed, whether you talk water, road, energy, and all this major infrastructure have collapsed or are near collapsing, if you ask me. In my view, position maintained by Professor Mondi, very much common, and, and every single South Africa, I would imagine, share these kinds of issues. And and majority of us are languishing in, in despair, given the death death of servant leadership, which we which we need in this country. In today's conversation, we put in a spotlight on race relations from the perspective of the Institute of Race Relations. And in making sense of this complex and intriguing phenomenon called race relations, I am joined by Hamid Pretorius in his capacity as the head of strategic communications at the Institute. Personally, let's take this opportunity to welcome Hamid. Thank you very much for gracing beyond governance, the show that you're no longer a stranger to. Nimrod, it is such a pleasure to be here with you and the listener and your opening remarks on Madiba, I think, are especially pertinent. We are celebrating not only or commemorating not only a decade since his death, but also 30 years since he received the Nobel Peace Prize along President de Klerk in 1993. And it was quite special. A few days ago, I was at the Institute's archive at Wits University, where I had the incredible opportunity to look at some of the items in the IRR's collection. And amongst those are the actual notes from which Mandela read his speech at the Ravonia trial in which he had that famous line of the ideal of a non-racial South Africa for which he is prepared to, if needs be, die. So it put me terribly in mind of this relationship that we have with the past where race relations have been and where I think together we can take it to a better place. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Before we get into the details of our conversation based on the research that you've conducted, let's take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. Welcome back. We have just uh, started our fascinating program. My name is Nemrotenberg. I'm joined by 
Herman Pretorius in his capacity as the head of strategic communications at the Institute of Race Relations. Um, Herman, before we get into your research, I just want to locate and embed race relations by juxtaposing it with uh, US and the UK and Australia, if you like. Uh, we all know that these countries are racially diverse in the states, which has always stood up to constitutional heritage of equality for all from the beginning in the states. Uh, as European colonizers exploited land and labor from indigenous African population, we all know that the idea of one treated unfairly based on race, ethnicity, color was actually capitalized on. Taking, you know, the same downward trajectory we all know that the slavery was abolished around 1865, which hasn't really made a big difference 100 years down the line. When Abraham Lincoln abolished slaves, slavery around 1865, it has been more than 100 years, I would imagine. And yet uh, we still have campaigns such as Black Lives Matters in the U.S. And I suppose the bigger question in, in contextualizing uh, race relations, which somehow has regressed in the U.S. and, of course, in South Africa, we've seen pockets of regression in terms of race relations based on what uh, we were before 1994 and post-1994. And these are issues that every leadership that is worth salt has to grapple with. Um, that is a context in which Personally, we need to locate in our conversation. And, and again, despite turbulent socioeconomic conditions that we find ourselves in in the country, as well as in the UK and in the US, there are pockets of excellence that uh, are uniquely South Africans, which in my view needs to be harnessed uh, to create one country whose trajectory cannot be divorced from issues such as land alienation, disproportionate representation of races, passions, and particularly in the private sector, for we all know that public sector has somehow moved progressively in terms of race as well as gender positions. So that in framing our conversations, I want to locate your research in that particular uh, space. Once again, Herman, take us through the kind of research. First and foremost, what is the philosophy of Institute for Racial Relations as a way, because I'm sure some of the listeners may know, may not know what is the philosophy or what does race relations work is all about. Take us through that, please. So the Institute um, is almost a century old now. We started in 1929 specifically to look at how to make South Africa a more equal country where potential and human dignity of all people, irrespective of their ethnicity, their language, their race, can have the opportunity, the freedom, the liberty to build a better life. And we must remember that in 1929, not only was there this question of black and white relations, but also the question of Afrikaner and English relations. We are looking at a context where the Anglo-Boer War was only 30 years in the past. So relations between Afrikaners and English South Africans were fraught, but relations between white South Africans, both Afrikaner and English, 
were also fraught. So it is within this context that the Institute came into being as a vehicle to undertake quantitative and qualitative research into the state of race relations and how that is perceived by the people of South Africa. And the Institute's history is is, is quite uh, a, a legacy in the sense that in 1946, a young staff member called Helen Sussman represented the IRR's views to the Fagan Commission calling for the complete abolition of pass laws, saying that they were against freedom and against economic opportunity. Then in the High Court in Pretoria, Nelson Mandela relied on IRR research, particularly on schooling of black South Africans at the time, to use the IRR's research to indicate the shocking circumstances in which schooling had to be carried out under the auspices of the then Bantu education. So when we come to today, the core philosophy of the Institute is one of non-racialism. It has been that for a 100 years, and we try not to look past what people think. Researchers quite often, I think, run the risk of being a bit patronizing to ordinary people and sort of dismissing the views of ordinary people. This survey that we're talking about today is exactly the opposite. It is an investigation as fair as we can make it into the perceptions of ordinary South Africans, how they have experienced race relations, how they see the past and the future of race relations, and Crucially, how the different races of South Africa can work together or perhaps can't work together for a successful South Africa. No, thank you very much for that insight, which it's quite interesting uh, and refreshing to a listener who would not have known the history and the philosophy of the Institute of Race Relation, which is almost a century old, as you are putting it. Uh, not uh, getting into the research that you've undertaken, uh, what was your overall population? Can you take us through the methodology of uh, research that I took? I'm sure you, you would have done, I don't know, papers of sampling, or you would have done random sampling. And, and what was the universe of this, the research that you've done? So uh, number one uh, was the sampling was randomized by telephonic interviews. We had a sample panel of 604 South Africans. Now that might sound small, but in terms of a population of roughly 60 million South Africans, a sample size of 604 randomized and demographically representative participants, that gives us a margin of error of 3.9% at an interval, a confidence interval level of 95%. So that 3.9% means any number that you hear in this presentation can be 3.9% higher in reality or 3.9% lower in reality. And the 95% confidence interval means that if we were to carry out this survey a 100 times, in 95 of those times, the answers will fall within that uh, margin of 3.9% up from the data you will hear today and 3.9% down from the data you will hear today. It's also key to know that we asked these questions in the language of the participants choosing to especially guard against 
just an Anglophone-based survey to make sure that we are representative and the data shows us a clear represent, representation of uh, across the country, across all age groups, across all economic groups, of course, and also the location of rural, suburban, and urban. The survey was carried out in October this year, so it's about five weeks old, the data. And at the outset, it is important to note that whilst an opinion poll is very interesting and often quite insightful, I would urge listeners not to just take my word for it, but to always see this opinion poll within the context of other opinion polls. We should be careful not to reduce these opinion polls to crystal balls or the entrails of animals to tell the hidden truths. This is a snapshot. We think it is a reliable snapshot. But of course, every snapshot has its limitations. It captures some things and not others. And it is within that context of other data and this opinion polling data that we should try and gain the insights from this panel um, that we investigated and engaged with. And it is worth noting that the IRR has been carrying out this survey for 15 years now. So it isn't just a once-off, and we do compare the results in the survey where possible to last year's results, and that does give us a useful context to understand shifts in the opinion on race relations. Interesting observation indeed. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Thank you very much for that. Clarity because typically research um, questions sampling uh, needs to be on point, particularly when you are you would want to make a generalizations um, statement. And your point about you know the ninety five percent probability of accuracy does obviously take into account some of the pertinent requirements of reliable data. But as we proceed, one of the questions that you've asked from the respondent was that since 1994, have race relations between people of different races in South Africa improved or stayed the same? And I'm seeing here there's about, there was about 83% of, I think this is black people saying it has improved. Just take us through that particular bit. Yes. So if you take the view overall before uh, segmenting by race, 49% of South Africans believe that race relations since 1994 have improved. 32% say they have become worse. And 18% say these race relations have remained the same in the last 30 years. Getting down to race groups, it is very interesting that by far and away, the group that sees the greatest improvement in race relations since 1994 are black South Africans. And as you mentioned, 83% of black South Africans are of that opinion that race relations have improved since 1994. Now, Taking the margin of error into account, that's 3.9%, that 83 could be as high as 87 or as low as 79. But I think you would agree with me that that is still a significant majority so that the margin of error doesn't really present a problem here. 10% of black South Africans say race relations have become worse and 7% say they have remained the same. 
If we then look at the other race groups, 23% of South Africans say, white South Africans say that race relations have become worse. 32% of white South Africans say they have remained the same. But the largest group amongst white South Africans, even though not a majority, but a plurality, 45% say race relations have improved. Now, on the balance, every race group in South Africa, except colored South Africans, have weight of improvement outweighing the stayed the same or become worse categories. Colored South Africans believe by 45% that race relations have become worse, 14% that they have remained the same, and 35% that they have improved. So on the question of race relations, it seems that colored South Africans are the most uh, uh, negative about race relations, and there might be some explanation on that, especially taking the history of colored South Africa into account, where the National Party might often have considered them too black, and the ANC, through policies like BEE or preferential procurement or employment equity policies, might have considered them too white. So colored South Africans have the most negative view of race relations in South Africa, but extrapolating to the broad population, we are on positive footing with 49%, close to 50% of South Africans seeing a positive change in the last 30 years. Well, that's quite interesting data, but um, from where you're sitting overall, what does this picture mean from a policy point of view? It means that the implementation of policy isn't felt or experienced equally by South Africans across the board. One can particularly perhaps look, or at least is perceived that way, one can perhaps particularly look at questions of education and housing policy in the Western Cape, where if one looks at what has happened on the ground there, a lot of South Africa's, colored South Africans are, of course, inhabitants of the Western Cape and are quite often feeling dismissed or moved aside on questions of education and housing policy, especially with regard to the massive movement of people from the Eastern Cape, mainly black South Africans, Tosa speaking South Africans, to the Western Cape. That then combines with the experience of education and housing policy where these opportunities become perhaps more scarce on the ground than many colored South Africans would expect. And that then becomes the driver of likely negative race relation feelings. We must also understand that question policies like black economic empowerment have a very high attractiveness value to black South Africans and a more divisive value in terms of perceptions amongst race groups like white South Africans, Indians, and coloreds. Now, we didn't investigate in this survey the actual effect of a policy like BEE. We have done that in the past, and only 15% of black South Africans say they have personally benefited from BEE. But the perception definitely here is that where government policy is experienced on a racial basis – Overall, there is this disproportionate experience, but it is overall positive to see that South Africans, if we look at some of the other questions as well, might have a negative sense of policy experience, 
but not necessarily a negative sense of race relations about how the races should interact with each other to make a success of South Africa. Those numbers of do we need each other are actually quite high and very encouraging. It's quite interesting that you have observed a disconnect between policy pronouncements such as the BEE and how it has been experienced by other races. What is missing, at least in my head, is how policy pronouncements such as BE values and the principle around equity, how equity considerations or the fundamentals of equity based on the history that the country can move forward until or unless those that were historically marginalized are brought into the core. Um, based on your interpretation, how is this the fundamentals of equity as a principle that is enshrined in the constitution around bringing about those that were left behind by the colonialism and apartheid being brought into the same level to those that have benefited in the past. How is that policy principle being consumed by other races? Because you have indicated that, you know, there's obviously a disproportionate impact. Mm. We asked a question that pertains to this very specifically, and the question was, will better education and more jobs decrease inequality within South Africa? So we've been asking this question quite a few times over the years to understand we see the issues of inequality, we see the disproportionality and the legacy of apartheid still lingering in especially poverty amongst black South Africans, how do South Africans perceive a positive route forward could be found? And on the question of is it better education and more jobs, 75% of South Africans, so three out of every four South Africans, agree with the statement that will, with better education and more jobs, inequality within South Africa will decrease. Now, this matches up quite well with polling done over many, many years, going back 15 years, but also looking at polling done by academics like R.W. Johnson, where South Africans are found to be pragmatic, non-racial, and quite often willing to go with the best solution, not necessarily guided by ideology. And in that pragmatic, non-racial frame of the South African mind, we see that Education and jobs, skills and economic opportunities are the constant theme of what South Africans want to see. We see that also in the question where we ask, what do you think government should be focusing on as matters, as a matter of policy? What should be the top priorities? By far and away, the number one response is unemployment. 47% of South Africans believe unemployment should be government's number one priority. Again, you see that desire for opportunity that should be the, that South Africans believe would be the basis of us moving forward. And then in the third data point, we also find that opportunity theme emerging again when we asked, do you prefer a political party which promises faster economic growth and more jobs? or one which promises land expropriation without compensation as redress for past wrongs. So we often see that 
land expropriation is seen as what the, the, the stepping stone for addressing past wrongs. But to the tune of 82.8%, South Africans believe that jobs and economic growth is the way forward to redress past wrongs. Again, it's about that opportunity. Are South Africans under the, are they having the lived experience of economic opportunity or are they having the lived experience of economic exclusion? If I can come back, Hanan, let's, let's take a step back and talk about in your definition, you saying better education, that's what, you know, majority of people are yearning and from a research point of view, I'm not sure whether you've been able to unpack the meaning of better education. Clarity on that. I want to come back to expropriation of land without compensation vis-a-vis job opportunities. Take me through that bit first. So the better education, we deliberately leave up to the participant to respond uh, because better education, as you point out, can mean a range of things. It can mean better schooling. It can mean better uh, cheaper schooling, it can mean better universities, it can mean cheaper universities, but what is the commonality of better education is skills development, deliberate skills development, and figuring out how that might look in practice, one can only, one can look at another question we we asked where is it more important for decentralized decision making, something like a tax funded school voucher where the state will make the resources available, but leave it up to the parents to choose the schooling or is race based affirmative action policies the way forward? And again, it is the South African pragmatist coming to the fore saying we would rather have the opportunities to choose and gain those skills than have necessarily government determining how economic and racial redress should work. So better education boils down to skills and that flows into the ability to compete in the jobs market and the ability to earn an honest income. And if there's one thing I think government and politicians should take away from this particular point, it is that we should, as a country, be making skills development as easy as possible and making entry into the jobs market as easy as possible. Interesting observation indeed. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimratan I am joined by Herman Pretorius from the uh, Institute of Race Relations. We are unpacking the survey that was done over the past five months uh, around the race relations in the country. Uh, before we took that break, you know, Hamid was giving us interesting observations on some of the, the findings from their research, um, which they've sampled around 604 and across, you know, different race class, you know, regions in the country. As we proceed, one question that I have based on how you, you, you raise a very interesting point. Let me read it out to you. It says, all this talk of racism and colonialism by politicians who are trying to find excuses for their own failures. Do you agree or disagree with the statement? That's the question. 
the, the, my bonus conclusion on this question, Herman, is typically when, from a research point of view, bearing in mind that there has to be that level of, of objectivity in as much as the respondent needs to make up their own mind, but there is this inherent bias, which I'm actually picking up from this particular question, and I want you to respond to it, because if you say all this talk of racism and colonialism, surely if I'm a respondent, there's almost that negative perception that is attached to the question. Don't you think this question, if it was framed differently, without missing the gist of it, you'd have got the same responses that you that you have wanted? So we we asked this question before and we we adjust the wording every time to make sure that we do not run into a sort of bias of that the results of the question of the responses to the question are solely dependent on the way the question is asked and the how we the, the logistics of how this question was asked was the interviewer would tell the participant i am now going to read you a list of statements and i'm going to ask you to indicate whether you agree or disagree with them. So on the slide where we present this specific, this specific question, you don't quite get that prelude of the interviewer making clear that there's going to be a list of statements and that these lists of statements aren't necessarily the belief of the participant. So there is, of course, one should always be methodologically as exact as possible. But in presenting the data, um, we try to be as concise as possible. And that might account for some of the problems here. The reason we also use the phrasing of all this talk of racism, colonialism, is because that is the language we pick up from South Africans using themselves. That is a claim in those sorts of terms that is quite often echoed by several race groups and people in South Africa. So it is worth for us investigating the response to that claim. Now, of course, this question, like all questions, has its limitation. We shouldn't read into this too much and read into this the uh, conclusion that all talk by anyone of about racism, colonialism or apartheid is this trying to find excuses. But when we put a question to the participants in a way that the participants themselves use the phrases, it is useful to see the responses to that question. So agreement or disagreement with this statement is all that we should read into this particular question. We shouldn't extrapolate from this too much. What the data does allow is to combine that question and the response to that question with other questions to form something of a picture, a perception of credible understanding of the views of South Africans. So your point is well made and well taken. And it is important that none of these data points are seen in isolation. Interesting uh, thoughts indeed. When I look at the actual results, I mean, we had about 100% black people, we've got 90% white people, got, in fact, we've got 90% white, not white people who said yes to that question. We had 100% uh, Indian that said yes to that question. You had 89% uh, from color that said yes to that question. 
and we had about what uh, black people that, you know, 60% of black people that said yes. It's quite interesting to see how, you know, the different races have responded to that question. But mm-hmm. coming to your point, you know, one has to look at this que- this question in a broader context of other questions. But I do, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you, 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 you understood where the framing of the question uh, could potentially uh, be seen to be biased. But let's move forward. Um, and look at the other question that you've raised um, and which you've already responded to that one of the questions was, you know, do different races need each other for progress and should there be a full opportunity for all? I mean, again, one would have expected 100%, but we've got like 67% of real respondents said yes, and uh, the 1% said no. I would be quite concerned about that one percent that says, you know, different races don't need each other. Uh, what do you make of that one percent that said, no, we don't need each other? When we look at race relations and interesting also relations between South Africans and foreigners, what we have seen is that economic, socioeconomic pressures quite often drive positive or negative race relations. When we have asked this particular question before, in a time of relative economic prosperity, that number of disagree falls dramatically. So it is something that we should acknowledge in the human psyche and in the South African mind as a general rule, that people under socioeconomic strain are very likely sometimes when pushed far enough by that strain to do to become tribal. Now, that tribalism can take on many definitions. It can be racial. It can be linguistic. It can even be regional. But when people are under pressure, that is when divisions of groups, whatever those group definitions might be, come to the fore most pertinently. Now, 31% of South Africans disagreeing with that statement. It is worrying, but I have seen that number lower before. And that is what gives me hope is that that number is what one might call a soft number. It is a malleable number that changes based on the stresses of the socioeconomic circumstances of South Africans. If we are in a country where, as you pointed out very accurately in your introductory remarks, where up to 40% on the broader definition of unemployment, South Africans are without jobs, it is quite possible that those South Africans are particularly stressed and under particular strain and feel that they don't they cannot look beyond what their immediate needs are. And that's very understandable on a very human level, because this question does assume something of a Maslow progression, where am I going to be worried about the races needing each other if I can't be sure that my child will have food tomorrow? It sort of puts it into stark relief that where South Africans are suffering intensely, The more abstract questions of opportunity for all and the races needing each other becomes a more difficult question for especially people enduring hardship to relate to. As an, as a counter to that point, if we make it personal and we again bring it back to the question of opportunity, there's a particular question in our survey that is possibly my favorite question. And that is where we say we give a respondent's the opportunity to choose between 
refused, undecided, or two other responses. At school, would you prefer your child to be taught by A, a teacher who is the same race as your child, or B, the best teacher, no matter what their race might be. And on that, we get 89.2%, almost 90% of South Africans saying the best teacher, irrespective race. So the moment we make it personal rather than abstract, that number of negative sentiment does become significantly reduced. And we see that pragmatic non-racialism again coming to the fore. So this is perhaps a lesson that we should take from our survey, is that South Africans relate to questions differently. If you make it personal, you might get a more clear, more visceral, more honest response. If you make it abstract, you might even muddy the data a bit. But that's the wonderful thing about opinion polling and quantitative quantitative data research is even bad insights still are insights. And again, seeing this in context gives perhaps a better view of these South Africans are under economic stress and real people. You know, my biggest, uh, I mean, as any South African listen to the show now, would be quite um, concerned that 31% of respondents, um, which is quite a hard number because actually like half of those that have read, uh, begins to question the democratic um, agenda, which is inclusive, which is democratic, and which is progressive in, in, in its nature. So, I mean, the fundamentals are obviously conspicuous when you look at on, of, uh, when you look at unemployment, um, which you have uh, correctly pointed out that in instances where there is that relative stability and opportunities, that number is likely to go down, which from a policy point of view, um, this the show obviously we have a lot of uh, you know legislatures and senior executives listening to it. Hopefully they are taking pause and reflecting deeply on this issue for it has prospects of undermining the ethos of unity, the ethos what the Rainbow Nation is all about. Anyway, let's proceed and get to another question. That and you Rod, may I quickly just add something that is very important to what you've just said. On the people who disagree with that, do the different races need each other? 38% of black people agreed, disagreed with that statement. We cannot conclude, therefore, that 38% of black people are racist. We can conclude from that that 38% of black people need to be, we need to understand their needs better. Because if we look at poverty in South Africa, if you are poor in South Africa, 90% chance you are black. Because poverty in South Africa today is still connected to the legacy of apartheid and many economic failures since. So when we ask people who needs opportunities, everyone or you in particular, it is natural to expect people who are suffering the most to want the most opportunity. So it is interesting to delve beneath the level of that question and come to that point that you are quite rightly raising. It is at the end of the day a matter of policy and of some seriousness to understand why 38% of black South Africans feel that they are alone, that they are economically isolated, even 30 years after the end of apartheid. Absolutely. One of the issues, the question that you, that you have raised, uh, which, which I found intriguing, it's around 
you know, whether people believe that sports in South Africa should be selected or participation of, of, of uh, individual in sports should be based on merit and ability, not by racial quotas. While you mulling over that question, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Chimene. I am joined by Hedmus Pretorius uh, from the Institute of Race Relations. We are debunking the survey that they have uh, conducted over the past four months, which gives us a nuanced sense of how South Africans are relating, uh, how different races in South Africa are relating. I mean, before we took that short break, one of the interesting questions that you have raised, uh, which reads as follows, for the purpose of the, of the listener, uh, it reads as follows. Uh, do you believe that South African sports teams should be selected only on merit and ability, not by racial quotas? And again, this is an, there's another, you know, philosophical question, um, because the assumption is that one day is racial quotas, which has been underpinned by a particular theory of change, uh, because in instances where there hasn't really been a push around racial quotas, other races were excluded. Take us through the thinking behind that particular question, bearing in mind that, um, you know, issues such as merit is uh, underpinned by certain sets of assumptions that one, people have got access to facilities, they've got access to resources to hire the best coaches, the best pitch, uh, and the, they have access to sponsorship and so on and so forth. Take us through yes. that. Um, so again, I think we see the theme of opportunities and the opportunity to develop skills coming through. It's not just an economic question. Is there uh, a route to economic participation. South Africans, again, want to see opportunities for skills development, even here on the sports field. It's very interesting that we carried out the survey during the month of October. And during the month of October, of course, the national rugby team, the Springboks, won their second World Cup in a row, our fourth World Cup, us becoming the first nation to get four and only the second nation to get two in a row. Of course, led by Sia Kulisi, the Springboks' first black captain. So were we only asking this question in isolation, I might be concerned about data contamination due to the context. But when we asked this question a year ago, we got a very, very similar result. And if we connect the dots We see that South Africans care about a South Africa that is successful and also have a significant amount of belief and confidence that given the opportunity, they will succeed. On this question of should national sports teams be selected on merit and ability and not by racial quotas, 90% of South Africans and 89% of black South Africans agree on merit being the key factor there. And if we take a step back and just look at the experience of South Africans, if we look at Makasole Mapimpi, if we look at our captain Sia Kulisi, if we appreciate uh, our bomb squad legends um, that took us over the line to win that final Oxen Che, 
we see something that we might call black excellence, but what we should actually be calling South African excellence. We see a multi-racial team picked on skills becoming world champions for the second time in a row. And it is very interesting if one looks at race relations, especially within rugby over the last 30 years. And one sees where quotas have been horribly misused, where black players would be sent on in the last few minutes of a game just to tick the box of racial transformation. Or they would be sent out at the beginning of the game and only play for seven minutes before a coach replaces them just so that the box is ticked. Race quotas has become something of a noble intent with a very ignoble consequence. And in the Springboks, I think we see it, uh, that, that seed of solution, that seed of let's put the best people in there. Let's give people like Sia Kulisi from intense poverty the opportunities to develop their skills and they will make our nation proud. It is exactly that question that you raise of not only merit, but access to developing those skills. In a last year's survey and the year before, we asked the question, how should people in South Africa be appointed? Should they just be appointed on racial grounds, in other words, black people, or should they be appointed on merit? Or the third option that actually got a majority support was mainly on merit, but with special opportunities for those from disadvantaged backgrounds. 58% of people in last year's survey said merit, yes, but you can't just go on that alone. You need to give, again, opportunities and skills development. And I think that is what is sitting in this question. The next Siakulisi is out there. The next Makazole Mapimpi is out there. Can we put in place the policies, the infrastructure, the coaching resources, the necessary kit, the necessary shoes to get that talent to run all the way. It makes a lot of sense if some of these questions you know, are based on what could be defined as a the fundamental for success because mm-hmm. access to resources, access to those coaches. Um, look, if you're going to uh, merit it's only applicable at least in my mind when you compare apples with apple. You take a child that is from uh, a affluent suburban, both Indian colors and whatever. Those the, the notion of merit is applicable in that particular context because they've got access to every single resources. But if you're going to use the issue of, um, you know, uh, quotas in instances where you get someone who from the suburbs who have got access to social capital, infrastructure, resources, and, and, and that person competing with somebody from the dusty street of Soweto or in the Eastern Cape, it's grossly unfair because there's no way in which that particular child, it doesn't matter how, how, you know, progressive or intelligent or competent is, but in the odds are staggering against that particular individual. But that's, that's an issue that you have noted. Something that is also worth noting, Nimrod, is if we look at, for example, the national sports team on the side of cricket, where we have seen black players reach that top echelons, 
terms of performance, it is very interesting to see that many of them, in fact, almost all of them, I can't think of a single exception, come from what one might call the middle class background, having gone to exceptional schools. We are seeing that emergence of an inequality within black South Africa, where if you have access to skills and you are black, you can make it. But if you have access to oh, skills development, pardon me, but if you don't and you are black, you are still excluded. So there is something key here that we are seeing an emerging disconnect between middle class South Africa sharing a particular range of opportunities and Below that, mostly black South Africans, but even poor white South Africans are excluded. We are seeing the emergence of class divisions and socioeconomic opportunity, again, perhaps starting to outweigh the question of race. Absolutely. The last question that I want to throw at you, um, and which, which has a very interesting results and, and observation is that of uh, the question reads as follows to, you know, just to benefit from the benefit of the listener. Uh, what impact does illegal immigration have on South Africa's unemployment numbers? Uh, we had about uh, 22% saying uh, illegal immigration is almost entirely to blame for unemployment. We have 47% uh, says illegal immigration it has the large contribution to unemployment. So take us through that, the thinking behind that question and how the respondents, and given the numbers that I've just thrown at, you know, your take on that. It is the first time that we've asked this question. So where on other questions we might be able to identify trends and movements, this question is the first time uh, that it, it is the first time that this question appears. So it, I'm hesitant to extrapolate too much from it in isolation. But what I do think we see here is that frustration that South Africans feel when opportunities are scarce. 47.3% of South Africans saying illegal immigration is a large contributor, a large contributor to our unemployment problem is a very high number. From an economic uh, point of view, I would disagree with that, but we are not measuring whether South Africans necessarily agree with me. We are measuring what their perceptions on these questions are. So when we look at this question, we must understand that socioeconomic push factors and uh, uh, pressure factors are likely behind this and that South Africans look at the situation of illegal immigration and they see illegal immigrants encroaching on opportunities for jobs, for skills development. So this Which, is a red flag. Politicians should be aware of this. Absolutely. But behind it is that but, opportunity. But let, me, let me just quickly come in there, um, Hammond. This is something that you as a researcher need to think about deeply as well. Because, look, there's, there's merit in this question. But perhaps maybe a follow-up question would have been, uh, because I've noted you, you did not raise it, who are the beneficiaries of illegal immigration from employment point of view? Because, um, you know, majority of people who feel aggrieved by this illegal immigrations are somehow benefiting other sectors. Surely that point can't be ignored. We know that in the farms, there's data. In the security services, there's ample data that um, the employers in those sectors are favorable mm. to illegal immigrants because they, don't, they pay them that cheap. That's a reality. And South Africans who would have ordinarily taken those positions 
um, would not agree first and foremost around the, the, the remuneration because there are laws in this country. Perhaps maybe I'm not sure whether you'd have raised it or you've thought about it. That's something that you need to ponder on. Your take on that? I, I, th- I think that is an excellent Excellent point and definitely something we will be looking at. It isn't a question we had in this survey, but your point is well made. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're going to deliver it to you. Once again, thank you very, very much for coming through. You and I have had a blast. I certainly uh, hope the listener was equally um, interested, intrigued by, by your research findings and how we, how we can take the, the country forward. Thank you, Nimrod, and to the listener as well. Absolutely. There there was uh, Hemi Pretorius from the Institute of Race Relations giving us very interesting observations based on the research that they have conducted on how South Africans are relating, how different races in the country are relating. Let's do this again next week. It has been absolutely beautiful. Look after yourself. Shalom.